if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at the end of 1 Samuel. So if you turn to 1 Samuel 28, talk some more about the life of David. We've talked about it here and there along the way. David's life in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is one of my most favorite parts of the Bible to read. So before 1 Samuel 28, in 1 Samuel 27, we're not going to read there, but David had feared that Saul was going to kill him. He just kept getting by, just barely getting out of his grasp. And it said he feared, he says, one day Saul was going to get me. He's kind of wavering in his faith a little bit. So he thought the safest thing he could do was go live with the Philistines, which is what he does. This map isn't exactly drawn to scale because it probably should be a little more pushed that way. The Philistines basically stayed on that coastline. But he goes to Gath and moves in with the Philistines because he figures Saul's not going to enter that territory, and he was right. So he's living with Achish. And Saul leaves him alone for a while. And Achish likes David. And David has him fooled. You know, Achish asks, where are you going? He says, oh, I've been going down to the Negev, down to the south, further south. I've been fighting names these different groups, and, and Achish thinks he's fighting people that are enemies of the Philistines, when actually he's wiping out people, the Amalekites and other groups, he's dealing with them, people that were enemies of Israel. So he's really not doing Achish any favors, but Achish doesn't know that. And he likes David, thinks he's his buddy. Says, I want to make you my bodyguard for life, he actually tells him. David says, can you give me somewhere to live? So he gives him this far city in Ziglag, and David moves there with his men and their wives, and their kids, and they set up house. And meanwhile, King Saul is preparing for his last great battle with the Philistines. So he's been fighting the Philistines off and on for over 40 years as king. But this battle here is going to be like none other battle that he fought. And the reason is, is he's going to die in this last battle he's getting ready to fight. So look at 1 Samuel, we're in 28, look at verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their army together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that you will go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. And David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make thee keeper of mine head, in other words, his bodyguard, forever, for life. Now Samuel was dead, verse 3, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even all his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. And then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit of Endor. So the Philistines had gathered their armies at this point north to fight Israel, and they have amassed their armies also. But what's happening is Saul's looking at this, and he doesn't like his odds. He doesn't like the odds he's facing. And when he seeks the Lord, he runs up against a brick wall. You ever had that happen? I've had that happen in my life. There was a time I needed God, and I had sin in my life. And I mean, he was dealing with me, and my prayers, I could just tell it was like steel. 
I was getting nowhere. And that is not a pleasant feeling to have when God is like a brick wall to your prayers. And that's what Saul was facing right there. And so what does he do? It says he seeks out a witch or a necromancer. And that's somebody that brings people up from the dead, contacts the dead. He wants her to get Samuel, to bring Samuel up and get direction. And that's what goes on to happen here in chapter 28. Samuel appears, and he gives Saul one last prophecy. And what he tells Saul is what Saul already knew. He said, he has rent the kingdom from you, and he's given it to someone else, to David. And he also tells Saul that he, his sons, and all Israel are going to be delivered into the hands of the Philistines that day, the next day. And needless to say, that is not what Saul wanted to hear. Whatever he paid that woman, all it did was make him, it says, sore afraid, because he knew he was in trouble. So what did he think he's going to hear from Samuel if God's not answering him? What kind of answer does he think he's going to get from Samuel? You have to wonder about that, don't you? What does he think Samuel's going to have good news for him and God's not answering him, the king? And then up in chapter 29, back in the Philistine camp, David tries to join up with the Philistine armies, and he's going to join them in their fight against Saul and Israel. Acts like he wants to anyway, says he wants to. And King Achish, he doesn't know what David's been up to. And he thinks he's a friend, considers him a loyal friend. But the lords of the Philistines are not quite as naive. The commanders of the Philistine army, they're not quite as naive as Achish. And they're like, man, are you crazy? Don't you remember the top 40 hit they had of David going all throughout the land that Saul <laughs> slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? And who were the ten thousands David's killing? You know, it wasn't the Egyptians, it was us. And you're going to bring him in here? And David will turn, they tell him, they say, look, this guy, he's going to turn on us and fight to get back into favor with Saul. And he's going to be like a fifth column fighting against us. So listen, Achish says, he has to tell David, look, I know you've been loyal, you're my buddy, and I want you to be my bodyguard for life, but I'm sorry, you're going to have to go back home. Can't fight with the Philistines, to which David, he's like, oh, what have I done? Why are you doing this to me? Protest his innocence, right? But look what we have here in 29, verses 6 to 11. And Achish called David and said unto him, surely as the Lord lives, that you have been upright in thy going out and thy coming in with me, and the host is good in my sight, for I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me unto this day. Since the day of thy coming unto me, nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. Wherefore now return and go in peace, that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said unto Achish, But what have I done, and what hast thou found in thy servants so long as I have been with thee unto this day, that I may not go fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good in my sight, and as an angel of God, notwithstanding the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore now rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants that are come with thee, and as soon as you be up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So what we have here, this is kind of a crude map, but this is where they're all gathering. All the Philistines are gathering in Aphek, and Saul is up here near Jezreel, up north. It's a 50-mile trip. So David has come up there to join them, 
And they say, no, 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 you're not going to join with us to fight up here. You're going back home, which is what he has to do. He has to return home. And meanwhile, they go up here to shoot him. So Saul in Jezreel, he has to slip past them to go up here and visit the witch of Endor. But this is where the battle takes place, up here in Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa is where the battle takes place. But David is sent back home. Isn't allowed to go up there and fight with them. So they've had to march 50 miles north to Ziglag, to Aphek. And the reason they meet here is this is the, basically their little territory that they control. They're calling on their gods here for power. That's what they're doing. And then after they do that, they're going on up north. They're all gathering there to call on their gods. But they said, David, you're not coming. You've marched up here from Ziglag with all your men, but you're going to have to march right on so they go on north in the battle, and David goes home. So let's read here. We want to read the first four verses now in chapter 30. This is what we're focusing in on, chapter 30. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziglag on the third day, so it took them three days to march back home, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag and smitten Ziglag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein, they slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. So we need to get a picture of what is going on here. David and his men have just marched 100 miles in six days with no rest. So that's approximately, they're doing 17 miles a day, and they weren't paved roads back then. This is rough territory that they're marching over. And so here they are. They've been sent back home, and picture this. They're getting close to home. And what would be on your mind if you were them? They're coming back home and they're looking forward to a relaxed time with their family. They're going to hug the kids, kiss the wife. She's going to have a nice meal waiting for you. You're going to tell a few stories and everybody's going to get into bed and the family's all gathered around for a good night's sleep. That's probably what they were thinking as they're heading back home on day one and two and part of day three going back to Ziglag, right? Probably been talking to each other about how God, he's just always delivered us. Here we thought we were going to have to fight against our brethren, but once again, God came through and delivered us like he has so many times in the past. And then, all of a sudden, out of the distance, they see this black smoke ascending from Ziglag, and they thought to themselves, that is not a good sign. And so they come there, and here's what they see. Well, they don't see any burnt bodies. But that really isn't much of a consolation to them because that means that their families have been carried off captive. Well, they didn't carry them off captive to go let them start another city somewhere. What were they going to do with them, the Amalekites? They're going to sell them into slavery. They think, picture their relatives. They're not dead, but they're just going to be slaves somewhere, probably down in Egypt. We'll never see them again. And that's what they're realizing. So they get there. Now there's no rest. No meal, no home, no livestock, none of these things. It's all gone. It's all burnt up in smoke. But worst of all for these people, they have no wives and children. Their families are gone. And that's more than these war-hardened men can take. These guys are warriors. They're tough guys. They're not like American males that they lose a basketball game and they cry <laughs> over a basketball game. 
I'm not talking about Louisville people. I'm just talking about in general. <laughs> but no, these guys, listen, they knew what it was to suffer hardship and to fight and not to break down. But losing their families, I'm going to tell you, to a Jewish family, their families to them are everything. Is that not right? They are. They are really solid as far as families go. And that was one thing that was just so horrendous when you read these stories and watch these documentaries on the Holocaust, is these people happen to live with the fact that here's their father being torn away, taken somewhere they'll never see him again. Just the anguish of that. People that are close to their families. And that's what really had to be tearing these guys up when they come back. They could handle all the other. But here's their families, their wives, and their children taken away, taken captive. And the Bible says they lifted their voices, David and all of them. All of these men wept until they had no more power to weep. So I think it was a number of things here. It was the unexpected surprise of finding all gone. They were not expecting that. It's the culmination of these men have lived under stress year after year after year of Saul chasing them. They're constantly on the run. They're constantly almost going to be killed by him and wiped out. He would have had no mercy on them. They're constantly having to deal with that. And the love they had for their families, this reunion they're looking up for, it literally has now all gone up in smoke. It's the culmination of all of that stuff. And it caused them to lift up their voices until they could weep no more. All of this is coming on them like a giant tsunami, just crushing them, crushing their spirits. Have you ever been there? So a lot of people, they would never weep in public. I'm saying no self-respecting teenage boy is going to be found weeping in public. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have done that. But... I'll tell you what I did do as a teenage boy, and after that, is I buried my head in a pillow many nights and sobbed when no one was looking, till I had no more power to weep. Because sometimes, doesn't it, just like with them, doesn't it seem like one problem just seems to pile on top of another? And you're to the point to where you're, you're kind of frustrated with things, and you think, man, life couldn't get any worse. And then all of a sudden, boom, zigzag happens to you. Those guys have been through so much all of those years, they probably thought it can't get any worse. And all of a sudden, here, we're looking at this. Everything totally gone, everything we care about. Life's an ash heap for them. So sometimes for us, it doesn't seem like we've lost all that seems important. And the devil seems to have the upper hand. In a lot of different ways, that happens. And it's all your emotions can take sometimes, isn't it? You just get laid low and you weep till there's nothing else to weep. And listen, that happens to everybody at some point in your life. I don't care who you are. That's just the way things are. And it happens in many different ways. But the point is, and the point of this story is, and what God's trying to tell us is, it happens. It will happen. Put something there and turn over to Psalm 137. Brother Hamilton talked about this verse quite a bit. I'd like to read it. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, 
sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they answer, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Because here's what's happened. Zion for these people is in their rear view mirror. And that represented everything to a Jew. The presence of God, the worship, his temple, their home. It's in their rear view mirror now. And what's sinking in on them is God's chastisement has become a reality. Here we are. We're not there. And they're saying, it's hard when you're under God's hand of chastisement to be real joyful sometimes, isn't it? And that's what the Bible tells us. Chastisement's not a time to be joyful necessarily. Afterwards, when you're through that, the joy will come. But a lot of times there's sorrow during chastisement. And sometimes your sins just seem to pile up on you. And you realize things just aren't right in your life, in my life. And then you have that major blow up, right? So I'm talking about me. I'm preaching to me right now when I'm on vacation. I'm like, all of a sudden with my family, I just get upset in the car over something that really wasn't that big a deal. I think it happened twice. And that just really bothered me. Some other things were bothering me about myself. But that really bothers me because I think, here I am preaching to my kids, Jesus is the way, the life, the truth, the joy. And I thought, where's it coming at for me? Inside, I'm weeping when I'm by myself. It's a problem. You realize you're not what you think you are spiritually a lot of times, aren't we? Isn't that the way it works? And listen, there's nothing wrong with that at times, right? Because that's God's humbling machine at work. That's what he puts us through. Turn back to James 4. James 4, beginning in verse 6, it says this, But God will give more grace if you'll humble yourself before him. Wherefore, he says, God will resist the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And what does he say to do here? There must have been a problem. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So there's times when that zigzag experience comes and it's one problem after another, whatever it may be, it seems like you're getting piled on and God brings you low and your spirit feels crushed and there's nothing wrong. Sometimes there's a time to be afflicted and mourn and let God do his work in you. That doesn't mean you have to give up or be discouraged, does it? No, because it says if you'll do that, if you'll just submit to that and have that occasion be where you'll draw nigh to God. That's what we'll read David goes on to do. He doesn't just stay wallowing in a puddle of tears. But no, he seeks the Lord and God lifts him up. Lifts him all the way to the throne to fulfill his promises. But sometimes we've got to go through that machine. But listen, what about these men he's with? They were some rough characters. They weren't the nicest of people. I don't think a lot of them were regenerate. But it's human nature. A lot of times after you get over... The bad news of any situation, what happens? You want to find somebody to blame. Somebody that got you in that bad way. And who should David's men have blamed? Should they have blamed David for what happened or God? 
Really, their blame would have better been put on Saul, because you know who took everything from him? The Amalekites. And who was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites? Good old King Saul, but no, he had to spare some of them. And here it comes back to bite them. They're a perpetual enemy. And so who should we blame when our troubles come, when our problems arise and our zigzags happen to us? Remember Job? Who was responsible for Job's loss? We get a little picture, a little glimpse behind the veil. God allowed it, but who was the main culprit there? The perpetual enemy of man. The devil. The devil's the one that robbed him, right? Let's go back to 1 Samuel, if you would. It's 1 Samuel 30. And look at verse 6. David was greatly distressed. And why was he distressed? For the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And the King James says the soul of all the people was grieved. But actually the Hebrew is they were bitter or feeling resentment. They're bitter and feeling resentment against David. They don't like these circumstances that all of a sudden they're having to face. They don't have their wife and kids, and they are looking for somebody to blame. All the people, it says in the ESV, were bitter in soul. All the people were embittered. And he was the leader, wasn't he, David? And that's usually the one that is going to get the blame. And I could imagine what they're saying to themselves. You know, he gathered them together many chapters back, many years before. And they were saying, we followed him because he told us that he was going to be king one day. And we would get all of our lands as a reward. But then I don't understand why he didn't kill Saul to allow that to happen. Just let him slip right through his fingers and twice. Here we could be living in luxury now. But instead we're still on the run and David could have ended all of this. And they're getting bitter about it. And we could have had decent homes in Israel. But here even our little crummy homes here in Ziglags are now burned to the ground. And our families aren't even here with us anymore. Children and wives taken captives. And they probably said, I've had enough of this shepherds. He's just a shepherd. Who is this guy? This shepherd's promises. I say we stone him. And you know how the mob mentality works. That's how you get 2,000 people going to riot at them all. <laughs> they like that. So who else do we know in the Bible that blamed their leader because of their circumstances? When you go back to Numbers 14, there are a lot of parallels that are very similar to this story. So when Israel hears the negative report of the ten spies and the giants that are in the land that will swallow up the inhabitants, you know what it said they did? Just like these men here, it says they wept all night. Wept all night when they hear that evil report. And they also complained that God had brought them out there to do what? To destroy their wives and their children. The same thing that happened here with David. And guess what else they were going to do that was similar? Guess who they were going to stone? Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. We need to stone these guys. They brought us into trouble. Just like what happened to David. But really, what is at the core of all of this? What is the core of the problem with these people? It's a distrust, a lack of faith in the goodness of God. You don't like the circumstances. This man's taught us this word. We heard this word for all these years, and this is where it has brought us to, and they want to blame the leadership. The message wasn't right. Got to reread the Bible. What has God done to us? No, the problem is it's a distrust in the goodness of God because it's easy 
to let your circumstances overwhelm you. And that's all you're seeing. It's easy to doubt the goodness of God. So the Israelites, in both cases, they're treating God like he was a liar. And out in the wilderness, he had promised if they would obey his voice, he would give them a land of plenty. And despite all the wonders and the great signs, the parting of the Red Sea, all the plagues he sent on Egypt, they refused to believe that. Refused to treat God. And here's what we need to see. When we disbelieve God, despite all the miracles we've seen done in our lives, the answers to prayer, and then we don't want to believe him because of the circumstances facing us now. We're saying you're not an honest being. You're not honest. And God is a person. Now, he is not a person like us, but he has a personality. He loves, has compassion, gets angry. But listen, most of all, what we need to see here, he is a person we can trust. He'll keep his word or his promise to us. And let me ask you. If my mom made me a promise and I knew she had the ability to fulfill it, I would not doubt my own mother. And so, but we're going to doubt the God that gave us our mothers, that he won't fulfill his promises. And what happens is when you start to question and doubt the goodness of God and his care for you, you become embittered against the Lord. And you may murmur against the message, the leadership or whatever, but really in reality, you're murmuring against God and his word. And that's what these people are doing. Their circumstances look bleak. All they can see is trouble around them. But listen to this, James 5, 11. It says, Behold, we count them happy or blessed which endure, which endure through negative circumstances. He said, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is pitiful and of tender mercy. I mean, you want to talk about one problem heaped on another, it Job experienced if it anybody did, but yet he refused. If he had a right to complain and be bitter against God, Job did. His wife's like, why don't you just curse God and die? He's like, I'm not going to do that. We can't receive good from the Lord and also evil. God will vindicate things in the end, and he endured through that. And in enduring those negative circumstances, he did see that God is compassionate, caring, and tender in mercy. He just needed to teach Job a lesson. Just like he needed to teach David and these men a lesson. Just like he needs to teach us a lesson when our zigzags come. We just need to see that God is good. He cares about us. And he will make our latter end better than what we're going through. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. But these men didn't. They had all their faith in their circumstances and they turn on David. And what do we read there in verse 6? It says at the beginning that David was greatly distressed. That means he wasn't just a little bit troubled by their criticism of him, he was greatly distressed because if you had a bunch of people picking up rocks coming at you, don't you think you might be a little bit upset? I might be a little bit upset. We read the same thing of someone else just a few chapters earlier. Do you know it's said of Saul? But in 28.15, when he saw those Philistines coming after him and who he was going to have to fight, it says the same thing it says of David here. He was greatly or sorely distressed. The same word. And I believe those two chapters are put side by side, 28 and 30 here. These two chapters are put because the author wants to make a comparison. He wants to see how these two men react. Contrast the hearts of David and Saul. Because when Saul sees that Philistine army ready to attack, who does he turn to? So he's got many options in his mind. Saul does. Many options. He turns first to the Lord. 
But when that gets him nowhere, guess what? He turns next to a witch, someone that he had banned. Didn't we read that? He said, no more witches in the land. We're going to do according to God's word. Someone that he had banned, someone the word of God had said was off limits to his people. Off limits those witches were supposed to be. But Saul is desperate and he needs help quickly. And he's saying to himself, wait a minute here. I've got more than one card in my hand to play. So the God card didn't work. Well, I've got several others here I can play. I've got one here I'm going to play. And he's like a lot of Christians. We've got a lot of options sometimes, don't we? We'll pray to God first, and if that doesn't work, well, then we've got other options. Then we can go to man, because for some reason, God doesn't seem to be coming through. But listen, in contrast to Saul with his options he has, David only had one option. Look in verse 6b, at the end of 6. It said, David, when he's distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because of the soul of all the people were embittered against him, every man for his sons and for his daughter. What did David do? Who did he turn to? It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Listen, so God was David's first option, but God was David's only option. He didn't have any other option. And here's the reason. Look at the end of that, verse 6. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. David could call God his God. And that was the difference between him and Saul. That is the key to faith. Because David's like Paul. He says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have to ask ourselves, can we say that the Lord Jesus Christ is our God? Is he your God? Is he your source? Is he your all and your Lord? When we sing the songs, you are my everything, you are my all, big and small, but in reality, is he? Saul couldn't say that. So when Samuel came and rebuked him earlier for not utterly destroying the Amalekites, Saul asked Samuel, he says, turn with me and honor me before the people. And why? Saul says that I may worship the Lord thy God. Saul couldn't even say it was his God. He wants Samuel to come and I can worship the Lord thy God. It's Samuel's God. It's David's God. It's not Saul's God. We have to know that the Lord is our God. That is the key to faith. That is the key to David's faith. And so we're seeing that here. Great faith, great faith begins with the personal knowledge that God is your personal God. Not the God of Mimi. I can know that God's her God, or Catherine, or Mrs. Wilder, or you name it. But we need to know that the Lord is our God, Amen. and he'll be faithful to us, and he will be. That is the key to faith. And listen to this, this scripture in Daniel 11.32. The people that do know their God is what it says. Those people, it goes on to say, shall be strong and do exploits. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. I like the way the New American Standard says that the people who know their God will display strength. We're talking about David strengthened himself in the Lord. That's what that word encouraged means. He strengthened himself. And when you know God is your God, you will display strength and do exploits, the Bible says. 
And that's the key for us, isn't it? That's what we should be seeing here. David encouraged himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Why could he do that? Because he knew him. He knew he was his God. He'd experienced him probably way back when he was a teenager on those hills. He made him his God and looked to him that way the rest of his life. So what does it mean to encourage or strengthen yourself in the Lord like David did here? Well, look, we're in 28, and turn back a few chapters, if you would, to chapter 23, 1 Samuel 23. So Saul is out seeking David. He almost gets him in this chapter in Keilah, and David just manages to get away, and he meets up with Jonathan, Jonathan, his friend. And so 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, it says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods. And what did he do? It's the same word for encouraged that we read back in the King James that uses encouraged, but it's the same word. And it says, he strengthened his hand in God. David needed some encouragement, and we need to do that for each other. We need to encourage each other in the Lord. And that's what it said he did here. He went out and met him, and Jonathan strengthens David's hands in his God. And here's how he did it, verse 17. And he said unto him, fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee. And thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also Saul, my father, knows. And so what did he do? He knew, everyone knew David had been anointed king. And he's just reminding him of the promises that he'd received. Just be strengthened, be encouraged by the promises God has given you. It's obvious. He probably told David, look, it's obvious. All the times that God has delivered you out of my father's hands. All the spears he threw at you. All the times he tried to kill you at night when you're sleeping. God delivered you. It's obvious, David. Be encouraged. No matter how rough it seems, you will one day rule this kingdom. And my father knows it. He knows it even though he still comes after you like he doesn't know it. But he's encouraging him in the promises of God. And so David's doing the same thing here. He's probably looking back on all the promises he'd received. All the times God had delivered him from the bear, from Goliath. All the way through, all these chapters up to this point, he's encouraging himself in God's faithfulness to his promises. That's how he did it. But listen, we need to know this, though, that if you're living in known sin, encouraging yourself in the promises is not going to work. It's not, it won't work for you, okay? Because it says in 1 John 3, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. If your heart's telling you things aren't right and that's why you're in trouble, God is greater than your heart. He knows it too. You're not going to fool him. So confessing promises and encouraging yourself that way when you know things aren't right in your life isn't going to work. But he goes on to say, but, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God and whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So if you've got things right, though, encourage yourself in the promises. That's what he's saying. We can know that God will give us what we've asked for. Don't let circumstances dictate to you the love God has for you is the point if things are right. Encourage yourself in the Lord, no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how crushed you feel by life's circumstances. Look, turn to Romans 8. I hope you don't mind. It's a familiar verse, I know. But look in Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Because we read here of some very trying circumstances, but Paul says none of those things 
in and of themselves will separate you from the love of God. Romans 8, 31, it says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Look what he says in verse 35. Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So he says, is all of that say that God doesn't love us? He says, no, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, height, depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we believe that? Can we say amen to that? Amen. amen. Because, look, there are some trying circumstances. Distress and peril, he talks about there in verse 35. When you're really in a distressful situation... Man, have we been in some distressful situations. And it seems like then, where is God? Because your emotions are screaming, your intellect's telling you this is crazy. But he's saying, oh no, distress or a perilous situation that you're in, something's not going right like it should. He's saying, don't let that sway you. He says, no, in those things that seem to be saying God doesn't love you, he says, in those things, no, we are more than conquerors in those things. Through him that loved us, we can conquer. Turn to Psalm 31. And that's what the psalmist will tell us here. Things seem to be bad, but we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. Psalm 31, in verse 1, it says this, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thy ear to me. Deliver me speedily. O be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. There's the my again. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for you are my strength. Into thy hand, Lord, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated them that regard lying vanities. In other words, the people that say these circumstances are going to overtake you, he says, no, we shouldn't observe those. That's what Jonah said. They that observe lying vanities. He's in the belly of a whale down on the bottom of an ocean, seaweed covering. I mean, how is he even breathing down there? What circumstances could be worse? But it said in there, he repents. It couldn't have been a worse situation. He repents in the belly of that whale, the fish, whatever it was. Right? He didn't let that overwhelm him. And God delivered him out of that. And he said, they that regard lying vanities... Even if it's because of your own sin. He was brought into that fish because of his sin. But if you're going to regard that and say these circumstances mean it's the end, God is going to swallow me up like this fish. He doesn't care about me. He says, you're going to forsake, lose your own mercy. So sometimes even when our sin has brought us to a hard place, we have to say, yeah, this is a hard place. It looks like deliverance. How can things ever work out? But he's saying that is when you still have to call on the Lord and know that he is still your God. Amen. 
even if your sin has brought you into that distress. And he'll have the fish or the circumstance spit you out of his mouth. And he'll give you the same promise and the same commission that he gave you like he did Jonah. Go to Nineveh. Go do what I was asking you to do before you got off track. I haven't given up on you. So we're back in verse 6 here. He says, I have hated them that regard lying vanities. But what does he say he does? But I, the psalmist says, I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. David says, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities, and you have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large room. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because why of mine iniquity? And my bones are consumed. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to my acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. He says, I'm forgotten as a dead man out of mine. I am like a broken vessel. Nobody cares. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. But what's his response? But I trusted in you, O Lord. I said, you are my God. Can we say that? My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. Make thy face to shine upon thy servants. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed and let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. But, oh, look at verse 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which you have laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of men. You will keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has showed me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. And look at verse 22. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Isn't that what these men were saying in Ziglag? Said it in their haste. A little too quick to give up, weren't they? And to turn on their leader. For I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, here's God's mercy. You heard the voice of my supplication when I cried unto thee. And David at the end, O oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and plentifully rewards the proud doer. And look at verse 24. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Look on those promises. Be of good courage. Trust in the Lord, as he said all through this psalm. And what does he say? God will strengthen your heart like he did David. All ye that hope in the Lord. Back to 1 Samuel 30. So the one way that we strengthen ourselves in God is by encouraging ourselves in his promises and in his faithfulness to us in the past for the promises we've claimed. And the second way we see here in verses 7 and 8 is we strengthen ourselves in the Lord by seeking his face. Look in verse 7 and 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, answered, 
pursue. For you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Now you think that did not encourage or strengthen David that he got an answer directly from the Lord through that priest. Oh, man. That had to encourage him. You know why? Because he had done that earlier back in chapter 23. He's getting ready to take that city. He does take it and saves that city of Israel out of the hands of the Philistines, Kiliah. And he asked the Lord, what should I do? Will these people deliver me over to the hand of Saul? And they said, God said, they will. And is Saul going to kill me if I stay here? And he says, gives him a two-word answer, he will. But guess what? It saved David's life. And so David knows when I seek God and I seek his face, he will give me direction that will put me in the way I should go. And that is an encouragement to him. And so he does the same thing here. He's like, I'm in a hard place. I'm encouraging myself. God, you have been faithful to me. And the other time when I was in a hard place in Keliah back in chapter 23, and I sought you and sought the priest, you told me exactly what I needed to do. And Lord, I'm asking you for that now. I need your help. And he seeks the Lord and he gets this answer. Can I pursue after these guys? Because he knows they're alive. They aren't playing their dead, his wife and kids. And the Lord gives him a one-word answer. Pursue them. And you will get everything. Now, you think that didn't encourage David from the Lord? And that's his word to us. And you've lost some things. You've had troubles come your way. Things don't seem like they're working out. You need direction. We seek the Lord. He will give us direction. And he'll give us back what we've lost. Surely, like he told David, you'll recover all. But the point I want to make for right now is David knew that if he sought God's face, God would bless him, give him direction, and do everything he promised when the answer came. Here's a song we sing, 1 Chronicles 16. Give thanks unto the Lord, David wrote. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk you of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. And he goes on to write, Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. So people that seek God first and only have cause to rejoice. He'll give you strength and he'll answer and give you what you need. So we need to seek God's face in prayer. So one time on a ship crossing the Atlantic, F.B. Meyer, I don't know how many of you, are, he's an older guy, I got a lot of his books, I like F.B. Meyer, he's an author, but he was on this ship and he asked the permission that he could speak to the passengers, he wanted to preach a little sermon. So he spoke on answered prayer. So this agnostic went and listened to him speak just because he didn't have anything else to do on the ship and he's like, I don't believe a word of what this guy says, I don't believe any of it. And later that day, Meyer was going to speak a second time, and the guy's like, well, whatever, I'll go listen to him again. And on his way to go hear him, he grabbed a couple oranges and put them in his pocket on his way to go hear him. So on his way to go hear him speak, he passes this old lady. There's this old lady on a chair, and she's asleep, and she's got her hands out like that. So he thinks, all right, I'm going to pull a joke on her. So he put the two oranges in her hands and went on and heard F.B. Meyer speak. And he's like, yeah, whatever he says, I really don't believe that. But he's walking out of there, and he notices the lady eating one of the oranges when he goes to walk past her again. And he says to her, he goes, eh, you really seem to be enjoying that orange, don't you? And she says, yes, sir, I do. She said, the father is good to me. And he's like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I've been seasick for days. 
And I was laying here seeking God and praying that somehow he would send me an orange. I fell asleep while I was praying. And when I awoke, I found that I didn't just have one orange. I had two. <laughs> a true story. And that agnostic looked at her and he did not know what to say. And he's like, wow, what this guy just said on prayer was confirmed. And the man got saved as a result of that. So we're saying, seeking God, he will not disappoint you. Even if all you need is two oranges. She's only praying for one. He over and abundantly blessed her. Gave her two. But listen, we might not need oranges, but I'll tell you what I think we all do need, and that is spiritual strength in the spirit. Don't we? We all need it. Because, listen, we are not going to overcome doubt and fear and anger in our flesh. So if you'll please just turn to one last verse here. I want us to see something in Ephesians 3. The whole point with David is he sought the Lord and was strengthened. So in Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 16, it says this. Paul writes, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And here's what he prayed, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to what? To be strengthened with might, by his spirit in the inner man. Now listen, the standard way for Jews and Christians in the early church to pray was to stand. And you go over there now on a wailing wall, you don't see them kneeling. They're standing there praying. And so to kneel, that was a sign of submission and of great need. So for a person to kneel and pray, you're saying, Lord, I'm submitting my life to you and I have a great need. And Paul prayed that way on his knees. This is how big a deal it was to Paul. It says he got on his knees to pray for these Ephesians that they would be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit. Now that means it's a big deal to Paul. I think then it ought to be a big deal to us because it's easy to read over that verse, right? The riches of his glory consist of the Spirit of God, which he'll gladly allow us to have that will strengthen us with his might. That is the word dunamis for power. We'll have this might or this power in our inner man to walk and live the way God wants us. So David needed to be strengthened in the Lord. Why? For a military conflict. Going out against the Amalekites. But listen, we have a different conflict, don't we? We have enemies that are different. That we're fighting in our inner man. Spirits, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual, invisible, but yet mighty forces. Spiritual wickedness in high places. Daily we're having battles with them, whether we realize it or not. And we need to be strengthened in our inner man. So look what he goes on to write here in Ephesians 3. That Christ, this is what will happen as a result, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So when God strengthens us with his power in our inner man, it brings something with it. Spiritual strength, but also the knowledge of the love God has for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is important. Both things are important. We need the spiritual power, but we also need to have that knowledge of his love for us. 
And so could you imagine if we get on our knees every day and pray like the Apostle Paul prayed for these Ephesians? He knew it was an important thing that every day we're going forth in the power of the Spirit in our inner man, knowing the love of God that he has for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. That love, it says, that is beyond our knowledge. We need that. We need that. I do. I need it. If no one else does, I really do need that. Because it will help you deal with life situations a whole lot better. <laughs> and if you're not sure about it, and you say, man, that just sounds too good to be true. To know and know beyond a doubt the love God has for me through the Lord Jesus Christ and the walk in that spiritual power. I don't know people that are like that. And that's why he puts in there verses 20 and 21. Him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think, he'll do it more than we think it's even possible. If we'll just bow our knee and seek him for that, right? He'll give us that spiritual strength beyond what we can imagine. And let us know of his love that's beyond comprehension. And Peter said this in 1 Peter, talking about Jesus and our relationship to him. Whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, is that the way we live our lives daily? Even though we can't see the Lord Jesus Christ, we've experienced him to the point that we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Is that what's bubbling up in us every day? So I've experienced that to some degree, but not nearly to the degree that I think Peter's talking about here. And it is available to us. And I think that is a goal to have. It's a goal for me. Because joy of all things is an evangelistic drawing card more than anything else. Because they don't understand your theology. But for me, before I was a Christian, I could see joy on true Christians' faces. And man, that meant I'm like, I want what they have. And so having that joy unspeakable and full of glory coming forth from us is a drawing card. Not only to our families, but to others. So what have we learned today from the life of David? One thing we've seen is our zigzag will come. And you know how we know that? Paul said in Acts 14, 22, he said we must. And that's the word in Greek. It means it is absolutely necessary. You can't get around it. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. We're not going to get away from our zigzag experiences. And he exhorted the, the saints there to continue in the faith. Don't get discouraged by your zigzags. That is how God will have us prepared for his kingdom. It's through much tribulation. And when that devastation hits, as it will at times, cry till you can't cry anymore. But when the emotion is spent and you stand there drained, don't become bitter towards God or the message or the leadership. Isn't that what we saw? That was the mistake they had made. We have to trust in what? The goodness of God. That he is going to see us through. Trust that those negative circumstances we're looking at have nothing to do that we're separated from his love. That's not what they should speak to us of. He says, no, we're more than conquerors through that. Don't let those circumstances speak louder than the love of God for you. The distress or the peril. They're lying vanities that we said. And so what do we need to do? Strengthen ourselves in the promises of God. And I'm telling you, when you're in trouble, it's easy to do that kind of stuff when nothing's going on, isn't it? But when, when you're in the middle of a trial and you're feeling pain and your head's hurting and everything's swimming, you don't feel like reciting promises, do you? No, you don't. I guarantee you David didn't either. But that's got to be. We've got to do it anyways. We've got to discipline ourselves to do that. 
and remember his faithfulness in the past. I think it actually, I hate journaling. They always wanted us to do journals when I was at school. I can't stand journaling. But I'll tell you what I do think is when you get an answer to prayer, when you seek the Lord, write it in somewhere. Get your little journal, just write that much in there. And you'll be amazed that starts accumulating. And you get in a tough time. I've done this before. And you go back and you see, man, God was faithful here, here. And this one right here I've got written, I'll never get out of this situation. And here I got through it. God more than abundantly blessed through that. And that will help encourage you to get through that. Remember his faithfulness. Remind yourself, this is not the first time I've been in a situation that looked impossible. Has anyone been in more than one situation that looked impossible? Thank you. I got a few hands. Yeah. Let's just say it isn't the first time. And he's always come through. And then we need to pray for the strength of his spirit. Pray in tongues. Get that Why Speak in Tongues book. That's a good book because I always like that example he gives in there of that lady that had lost her husband and she was grieving and she just prayed in the spirit. Because what that does, God, he can comfort us through his Holy Spirit with the comfort that can come no other way. Just praying in the spirit, building yourself up in the most holy faith. Because why we need to be strong in the Lord in these last days, don't we? And in the power of his might to stand in these evil days. So we see all that and we know what? That God is faithful. David did that and what was the last word we read? He said, surely. That was God's word to him. Just like we got a surely up there, he'll heal us if we trust him. And he told David, surely you will recover all. Did he? Come back next week. We'll find out. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us here today in this, the life of David that we can learn so much on, Lord, how you want us to walk with you and to trust you despite the circumstances, despite the problems that come our way, that we can strengthen ourselves and remind ourselves of your faithfulness and your promises, Lord. And I just thank you that you'll teach us how we can be strengthened in our inner man by seeking you. And, then, and through that, you'll also show us the insurpassable love you have for us, that our circumstances are not what speak of your love. It's your word, Lord, that tell us how much you love us and that we can be more than conquerors through whatever comes our way. We just thank you, Lord, for the encouragement of your word and for your presence with us. And I just ask all of this to be a blessing to, to all of our hearts here, Lord, that we can be encouraged in you, that you are with us and haven't forsaken us. And that you will get us ready and prepared for these end times that are upon us now. And you'll have us as a people ready to trust you, to glorify you in these last days. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you. Glory and your fame, it's not about me. Because if you should do things my way, you alone are God, and I surrender to your way. It's all about you. This is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my